Welcome to the Bodily Transgressions and Fantastica Media podcast series. We hope you enjoy the series. If you have any questions or comments, we invite you to attend the Digital Symposium, which will take place on 12th November 2022 via Zoom. The event will be free, or drop us a line on our Discord server. Details are in the podcast information or can be found at fantasticajournal.com under CFB's events and news. That's Fantastica with a K. This podcast is part of Panel 7, Island Oppressions, which will take place at 6.15pm GMT time. This podcast is presented by Trey Kohler. Trey teaches at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and Brunswick Community College, while his research is grounded in analyzing identity in horror cinema. Sinead Kohler's film review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was published in the May 2021, Volume 5 edition of Fantastica Journal. This podcast today is entitled, What is Blood For If Not For Shedding? Bodily Transfiguration as Racial Violence and Trauma in Bernard Rose's Candyman, 1992, and Nia DaCosta's Candyman, 2021. Clive Barker, in his famous short story, The Forbidden, introduced the world to the power of an urban legend. Look in a mirror, say his name five times, summon him, and he will respond. Candyman... Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Very few ever make it past four. While Barker infused socioeconomic critiques on class with his hook-handed, jaundice-turning white monster, it wouldn't be until Bernard Rose made the titular decision to change the race of the monster that Candyman became a legend in horror cinema. With this crucial deviation from Barker's original story, Rose encouraged interdisciplinary discussions regarding race, class, and violence in America. Though Candyman appears in two following direct-to-DVD sequels, which Tony Todd, in his interview with YouTube film critic Jake Takes, classifies as missteps, it wasn't until Nia DaCosta's 2021 requel that Candyman was summoned once again. Throughout the film, DaCosta deviates from Rose in her exploration of the difference between the Candyman versus a Candyman. In other words, like William Burke, a man who resides in the Caprini Green Housing Projects, or Candyman's place of birth, states, Candyman ain't a he. He's the whole damn hive. This podcast episode aims to discuss the intertextuality of the conversation between Bernard Rose and Nia DaCosta. Both Rose and DaCosta call upon the fantastical to paint grotesque scenes and images of bodily transgressions fueled by racially motivated violence. It is my goal to articulate how DaCosta is building upon the Candyman folklore laid forth by Rose to offer a damning critique on generational racial trauma and violence in America. Before delving into my analysis of DaCosta's text, it would be negligent on my part to assume that you may be familiar with the story of Daniel Robitaille, so I will provide a brief summary here. In doing so, this summary creates a foundation upon which I will build my analysis. Daniel Robitaille, as best displayed in Bernard Rose's film, Candyman, and Bill Coden's sequel, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, is the story of forbidden, unrequited love. Robitaille was the son of a slave pursuing a career in art. A wealthy landowner commissioned Robitaille to, as arrogant professor Philip Purcell puts it in Rose's film, 
capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Robitaille and the daughter, who we later find out as Caroline Sullivan in the sequel, were in love with one another and conceived a child. Finding out about this, Caroline's father organized an angry white mob to lynch Robitaille as punishment for loving his daughter. The mob cheered as white men held Robitaille down, sawing off his right hand, the hand he used to express his art, and replaced it with a rusty metal meat hook, emblematic of the castration of black male slaves as punishment for rape. But that wasn't enough. The mob then lathered Robitaille with honey from a nearby beehive and let bees flock to the sweet nectar to sting and eat away at his chest cavity. Christopher Robinson, in his article, Bernard Rose's Candyman and the Rhetoric of Racial Fear in the Reagan and Bush Years, explores the image of the bees and Robitaille's death in his essay when he states, The insects also bring to mind urban legends about killer bees. The obsession with these bees is linked to white fears of racial hybridization and violent retribution. Frequently called the Africanized bee, the media had stoked apocalyptic fears of the insects for several years prior while playing on unconscious fears of black aggression and racial pollution. Robitaille died a slow, painful death while the infuriated white mob cheered, repeating the name in unison, Candyman. Rose and Coden utilized grotesque bodily horror and violent transgressions against the black male body to tell a narrative of one man's experience regarding racial violence in America. DaCosta builds upon this narrative, but articulates that this is not the narrative of one sole man. No, Candyman is not an isolated incident, but rather it is the cyclical nature of racial violence that happens all too often. DaCosta shows her audience the birth and creation of a Candyman, while forcing her audience to face and reconcile their privileged negligence regarding racial violence. Throughout the film, Anthony McCoy, portrayed by actor Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, is the primary source of bodily transgression. He serves as the protagonist and focal point of the film as the audience is forced to watch his agonizing transformation into the monster known as Candyman. At the outset of the film, Anthony McCoy is a struggling artist dating Brianna Cartwright, an aspiring art gallery director. Searching for inspiration for his next work of art, Anthony visits the Caprini Green housing projects to research the urban legend of Helen Lyle. It is here that Nia DaCosta displays her first transgressed body, the Caprini Green community itself. Caprini Green is a transgressed body in that the community is victim to both whitewashing and gentrification. Visually, this is best displayed in the image of the sole church in the community. Anthony completes research and finds an old picture of the Caprini Green Church. Originally, this church was black with small, intricate designs. DaCosta holds on this image for one second. Immediately following this image, Anthony lowers his picture of the church, revealing that now the church is completely white. DaCosta exemplifies that the church has undergone a complete whitewashing in its most literal sense. 
The whitewashing of the Caprini Green Church is also emblematic of the whitewashing of the Candyman urban legend altogether. Throughout Rose's initial film in 92, Robitaille as Candyman often refers to the residents of the Caprini Green housing community as his congregation. Robitaille paints himself as a godlike entity punishing any member of his congregation who fails to fear him. Fear fuels Robitaille's congregation in Rose's film. However, the first scene of DaCosta's movie is a retelling of the myth. DaCosta subverts audience expectations in this moment, and instead of hearing the urban legend of Candyman, we hear the urban legend of Helen Lyle, the white protagonist in Rose's initial film, who descended upon the Caprini Green community to complete research on Candyman. The whitewashed church is symbolic of the whitewashing of the Candyman urban legend. Robitaille no longer holds the fear of his congregation because Helen's story has replaced his. Thus, not only is the Caprini Green housing community a transgressed body, but the urban legend itself is a transgressed body. During this scene, Anthony meets William Burke. As mentioned before, William has lived here his entire life in the Caprini Green housing projects. He's watched his community undergo a violent cycle of whitewashing and gentrification. It is interesting to note that William takes Anthony to a laundromat he owns in Caprini Green. This serves as a symbolic dewashing or reclamation of the urban legend. Up until this point, Anthony was interested in the story of Helen. In fact, he knew nothing of the history of Candyman until William opened his eyes to the true legend. William witnessed the violent creation of a Candyman in the opening of the film as his scream alerted police to the hiding location of Sherman Fields, an innocent black man who was accused of lacing neighborhood candy with razor blades. William listened as cops pushed past him and beat Sherman to death on the spot. When Anthony asks, what's Candyman? DaCosta solidifies the bodily transgression against this urban legend as Candyman is completely dehumanized through the use of the word what as opposed to who. Candyman is not a person in this moment. To Anthony, Candyman is a thing. William responds, For me, Candyman was a guy named Sherman Fields. Through the subtle use of the introductory phrase, for me, DaCosta hints at the cyclical nature of the birth of this legend, suggesting that Candyman's different for everybody, depending on the generation that you are raised in. This introductory phrase is a subtle foreshadowing of the final scene of the film, where DaCosta fully explores Anthony's visceral bodily transgression. Though the act and portrayals of whitewashing are crucial to DaCosta's depiction of Caprini Green as a transgressed body, it is also essential to look at the commentary DaCosta provides regarding the gentrification of the community. DaCosta offers commentary on gentrification within the first ten minutes of her film when Anthony, in reference to his and Brianna's apartment complex, states, They tore it down and gentrified the shit out of it. Brianna interjects. Translation, white people built the ghetto and then erased it when they realized they built the ghetto. In these two lines of dialogue, 
DaCosta masterfully depicts gentrification as an act of violence. Notice Anthony's violent language, tore it down. Notice who has agency in Brianna's translation. The community is being subjected and enacted upon without any consent or even care for, in that matter. In this violent removal and destruction of the community, the oppressor is still the party with agency. Thus, DaCosta depicts the Caprini Green community, and any gentrified community for that matter, as a transgressed body subject to violent acts of removal and replacement. The quintessential transgressed body in DaCosta's film is that of Anthony McCoy. DaCosta invites her audience to witness the visceral creation of a monster. While Anthony is taking photos of the Caprini Green Church, a bee stings his right hand. This small sting is what DaCosta uses to begin Anthony's transformation into a candy man. Note how Anthony's transformation cannot begin until he comes face to face with the gentrified, whitewashed Caprini Green. Bodily transgression in relation to racial violence and trauma is cyclical. Throughout the film, Anthony's sting worsens and eats away at his hand, turning into a small, scabbed-over wound. This small sting, symbolizing racial trauma, is eating away at Anthony. A prominent scene depicting the worsening of Anthony's wounded hand occurs when Anthony visits the apartment of Finley Stevens, an art critic who originally disliked Anthony's original Candyman-inspired artwork titled Say My Name. Finley originally felt that Anthony's work spoke in didactic, knee-jerk cliches about the ambient violence of the gentrification cycle. Immediately following this critique, Finley, talking to Anthony, blames your kind for pioneering the cycle of gentrification. Though the your kind, Finley assures that she is referencing here are artist, DaCosta uses this moment to subtly reflect the victim-blaming rhetoric utilized all too steadily in conversations regarding the oppression of communities of color. But now, Finley claims that Anthony's work feels eternal. Though, in comparing the two scenes, in the later scene, Anthony is the character portrayed with agency and power. Calling back to when Finley first engaged with his work, Anthony rhetorically asks, Artists gentrify the hood. Who do you think makes the hood? The city cuts off a community and waits for it to die. Then they invite developers in and say, Hey, you artists, you young people, you white, preferably or only, please come to the hood. It's cheap. And if you stick it out a couple of years, we'll bring you a Whole Foods. In this line of dialogue, DaCosta once again offers commentary on gentrification as an act of violence against a community, though now Anthony is the individual relaying this information, thus symbolizing his understanding of the depiction of a community as a transgressed body. DaCosta couples this conversation with a close look at Anthony's worsening scab. What once was a sting is now covering a large portion of his hand. 
DaCosta provides a close-up shot as Anthony picks at this scab and pulls it off, thus showing how this bodily transgression, symbolic of racial violence, is taking over Anthony. The act of picking at the scab also calls back to American political rhetoric regarding the scab of race. A 2018 headline from politically left-leaning MSNBC's YouTube page reads, As president, Donald Trump pokes and prods at the scab of race. On the opposite end of the American political spectrum, a 2013 headline from the Washington Times reads, Obama picks scab off of America's racial wound. Providing these two opposing headlines shows that both ends of the American political spectrum utilize and exploit scab rhetoric in relation to racial trauma, though they neglect the actual wound or cause thereof. Now, DaCosta takes that rhetoric and forces her audience to visualize and see the grotesque scab for what it is. A bodily transgression fueled by generations of racial trauma eating away at the very body it covers. If the scab is picked and prodded, the wound can never heal. Anthony's body worsens throughout the film, reaching its peak grotesque and decrepit display in the climax of the film when Brianna, looking for Anthony in the Caprini Green Church, finds William holding Anthony against his will. The wound from the sting, or as stated above, the visual symbol of racial trauma and neglect, is no longer contained to Anthony's right hand. Now, Anthony's wound covers the entire right side of his body. William, talking to Brianna, states, When something leaves a stain, even if you wash it out, it's still there. You can feel it, a thinning deep in the fabric. The neighborhood got caught in a loop. The shit got stained in the exact same spot over and over until it finally rotted from the inside out. They tore down our homes so they could move back in. We need Candyman, because this time he'll be killing their fathers, their babies, their sisters. William is taking ownership over and finding power in the transgressed body. Notice also how William gives agency to the party who stained the community. It is only through embracing and directly fighting against this cyclical stain that the community can reclaim agency. As he stated earlier in the film, Candyman is how we deal with the fact that these things happened, that they're still happening. So now, William is taking it upon himself to create a new Candyman. This is a crucial deviation on DaCosta's part in that Candyman is no longer birthed out of an act of racial violence, but now he is created out of a need to fight back against racial oppression, violence, gentrification, and trauma. DaCosta displays that the world does not need another artist exploiting black trauma, the world does not need performative activism, which in turn perpetuates neglect and complicity, causing further racial violence. The world, despite if it wants it or not, is going to witness the monster it created. In DaCosta's film, Candyman is no longer a monster of his community, 
but rather he is a monster for his community. If you remain complicit in the face of racial trauma, then unapologetically, the charge of your neglect will be your life. DaCosta dares her audience to summon him, because in doing so, you will be forced to face the decrepit, grotesque, transgressed body, symbolic of decades of neglect and cultural restaining from the cyclicality of racial trauma. Usually, as the credits roll, that signifies the end of the film. Yet, DaCosta, through the use of shadow puppets, utilizes this space to blend the fantastical with the historical through her depiction of racially motivated crimes throughout American history. These are, in my opinion, the most powerful images in the film, as they serve as the perfect bookend to accompany the film her audience just watched. DaCosta incorporates depictions of George Stinney Jr., a 14-year-old black child who was convicted of murder and died by electrocution, only to be exonerated of the crime 70 years later. Lindsay Beaver in the Washington Post writes, George Stanley Jr. sat so small in the electric chair that the straps were too big to contain him. The 14-year-old had to sit on books for his head to reach the headpiece, and when the switch was flipped, the convulsions knocked down the large mask, exposing his tearful face to the crowd. DaCosta also portrays the 1998 murder of James Byrd Jr., where three white supremacist men tied Byrd to the back of their pickup truck, dragging his body for three miles. The men then left Byrd's torso in front of a black church in the community. In blending the historical with the fantastical, DaCosta forces the audience to pull back the scab of racial violence and pry into the cyclical nature of these violent crimes. In the fantastical, through speculative fiction, DaCosta, highlighting each victim as a candy man, privileges and gives the victim of racially motivated violence power. Unfortunately, historically, this power is never reclaimed. Though there is power in a name. The victims do not come back as ghosts seeking vengeance, but they do haunt the collective conscious pertaining to race in America as these victims are forced to leave their stories as cautionary tales to minority children. It is our duty to take up the hook and transfigure the cyclical body of racial violence encased in America. It is our duty to say their name, Emmett Till, George Stanley Jr., James Byrd Jr., Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, among many, many others. It is our duty to tell their story, to say their names, and most importantly, it is our duty to tell everyone. <laughs>